0: Hey there social work students, I don't know how you're doing and if I were to ask you that then I wouldn't be able to hear your response because this is a podcast lecture. It's kind of a one-way media. Be that as it may, uh, wherever you are, I hope that you are enjoying yourselves in some way, shape, or form. Uh, this is a podcast lecture for the second week of class. What we're going to be covering in today's podcast lecture is some additional content that I think relates to the reading that you did for this week. Again, uh, these podcast lectures are not an attempt to summarize what you've read. I think that that would be kind of rude. It would be a little bit insulting to your intelligence. You're all adults. You can read. I don't want to tell you what you've just read. What I do want to do instead is supplement your reading by adding to it, giving you additional things that you can use to think about different concepts. That's what we're going to try to do here today. So now that I've done that, I'm going to stop talking for just a little bit, play a little bit of introduction music. And when we come back, I'll be getting into some of the concepts that I think will help us as we go through from chapter my two. My hand. Why don't people understand my intention? We're, we're, we're science. Elastic dukes and pots and So this chapter focuses on problem solving, and what I wanted to do is kind of similar to what I did, I think, in the first class. I want to take a bit of a critical read of what's going on in this chapter, and when I take a critical read at it, I notice a couple of things that I think are really, really important that, this, that the writers of this book and of this chapter seem to just kind of ignore altogether. But before I get into that, before I get into the things that I think they have ignored, some of the things that in my mind they kind of got wrong, let me start with what they got right and say just a little bit about that. The way to frame this, I think, would be to say that I think there are more or less kind of two sorts of problems that we might deal with. Now, of course, there's actually more than two sorts of problems. I'm painting with an extremely broad brush here, but bear with me. The first kind of problem are the kind of problems that you can solve Usually, by gathering information and analyzing the information, that's one kind of problem. However, there's a second kind of problem, which I would argue doesn't really matter how much information you gather. It's, it's actually not going to solve the problem. This chapter, I think, it gives us some pretty good tools that we might be able to use if we're engaging the first kind of problem. These are the kind of problems that lend themselves to solutions when we apply something which is called the scientific method to them. That method uh, is kind of outlined for you in the text on page number nine. Uh, On that page, you know, it talks about that method that goes about identifying problems, studying the problem, exploring the problem, gathering data about the problem. Uh, This is what we would call assessment, right? Then engaging in some kind of experimentation or in in our terms, a lot of times we would call experimentation intervention, then evaluating, the effectiveness of our intervention or trying to figure out, you know, what kind of information the experiment has spit out uh, and then, you know, making some new choices. And and again, that's a really great way to solve certain kinds of problems. It's a very rational way of solving problems. And I think it works for very rational problems. So for example, let's, let's play with that a bit. Let's say that there is a problem. And the problem is uh, that you need to get a bunch of, uh, clean water to people who currently don't have access to enough clean water. You could uh, identify that problem. you could create a hypothesis about different ways that you might go about getting them clean water. You could test those hypotheses, try those things out, see if they worked or if they didn't. Maybe you might try to eat, like three different ways to get them water, and whichever one ended up being like the, the best way to do it, you'd go, okay, that's clearly the one that we should engage in. The most or that's the one in which we should put the most like resources, money, time, whatnot into. That's a rational problem. Rational problems are solved through the application of a rational problem solving model like the scientific method. And there's all sorts of different variations on the scientific method as well. On page 10, you know, the text kind of gives you this sort of worksheet you can do, which is a good way to kind of gather relevant information about a problem. And once you've gathered that information, you can kind of go about making your hypothesis, making your plan, planning your intervention, whatever, uh, and then evaluating the outcomes of it after you implement it. On page 19, it gives you a different model, which is a kind of like, it's an interesting model. It's like a spatial way of trying to figure out, you know, what the problem is and how you might engage with that problem. And all uh, th- those things work really well for, again, the rational problems. I feel like I'm repeating myself a lot here. and It's not that it's I feel I am. I am repeating myself a lot here, and I, I think that part of the reason I'm, I'm doing that is I'm trying to uh, take a generous view of this text, right? As I said on, on our first class, it's not a text that I find to be really, you know, kind of mind-blowing or anything like that. I find it a little difficult to read because it's not written in a voice that I would call an exciting voice. So I'm trying really hard here to say, like, you know, there, there are some good things in this book, and I am trying to highlight those. That's, that's what I'm trying to do here. But now that I've talked about all of those, I feel like I've I've been nice. What I'm going to do is I'm going to stop being nice for a bit here. We're going to play some transition music. And when we come back from this transition music, we're going to engage in the critical reading of these things. We're going to talk about the kinds of problems that don't lend themselves particularly well to rational solutions. Now we're going to talk about the more interesting, kind of, uh, in my mind, fun aspects of uh, problems. We're going to talk about the irrational problems, the problems that are not going to be solved by the simplistic application of the scientific method or some variation on the scientific method. We're going to talk about the kind of problems that I think are the big problems in our culture, and our society, right now, today. Let me give you a very short, non-exhaustive list of some of these sorts of problems. Racism, abortion, pro-life, pro-choice kind of dichotomy where those two forces are engaging one another in either a debate or a battle, I guess, depending on your perspective. Uh, gun control is another good example of something that people have some really strong opinions about. You know, uh, the violence is the problem. People uh, have different ways of thinking they should solve that problem. One group of people, broadly speaking, thinks that the way to solve it is to limit people's access to guns. Another group of people, broadly speaking, says that the best way to combat violence is, in fact, to increase the general population's uh, access to guns, right? This This is one of those big debates kind of raging in our culture right now. The concept of gender, You know, there are people who say there are only two genders, period, full stop, that's it, nothing else. And there are other people who say that there's way more than just two genders, that there's a lot of different variations on gender that people might engage in, right? That gender is in fact kind of more of a performance than a biological distinction. I could go on, but I'm going to guess that by this point you're you're understanding where I'm going, right? I've listed a couple of different really big um, issues slash problems that we're experiencing in our society today, right? And there's a range of opinions, there's a range of reactions, there's a range of ideas about how we should solve those problems that are out in the culture today as well. And what I've noticed is that a lot of times people might make a rational argument for a particular position in relation to any of those issues. Somebody will say like, hey, look, here I've done a bunch of data gathering I've analyzed my data, I've done a linear regression model that shows that X is correlated with Y, whatever, whatever, and no matter how much evidence people produce and present, no matter how well they package that information, if they write it up in a really uh, well-written book or they put it into an excellent PowerPoint presentation, they do a TED Talk, whatever. Regardless of that, people remain uninterested In information that does not correspond with what it is that they happen to believe or or feel is true. I'm going to say that one more time here, uh, just to make sure that I'm getting it across here. We have a lot of issues in our society where people are putting a lot of time and energy, sometimes money and other resources, into doing studies. And those studies do produce data. They produce results that are analyzable and understandable. And people analyze them and understand them. Then they take that and they take that inform they take the information that has been gained as a result of doing the rational scientific study, and they they put it out into the world. They say, "Hey, look at our data." And no matter what the data says, in many of these instances that I named, and probably a whole bunch of other ones that I didn't name, people remain unmoved by the data. They they don't take it into account. They're like, "Okay, great." You have data, but then they, they don't care about what the data says. They, they ignore it or they uh, debunk it or attempt to debunk it. I don't know. There, there's a, the, whatever the reaction, it is not a reaction of acceptance. It's a reaction of some form of rejection of the rationally produced data. Likewise, in these situations, when people see data that corresponds with what it is that they happen to believe is true, they're very quick to adopt it and be like, oh, look, the data shows Whatever. They're like, look, 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 data, data, data. I have data. Look at my data. It shows my. It shows that what I want to believe is true is true. I like this data. And then when they're exposed to any kind of data that would refute what they believe to be true, they're like, well, that data's flawed in some way, shape, or form. I'm not, I don't buy that. No, mm-mm. that that was produced by a group of people with an ulterior motive who just, you know, they're they're cooking the books. That's not it's not real data. They'll say something like that, right? And, and this is. This is a problem because uh, it shows the limitations that exist with looking at problems from a purely like objectivist, scientific, empiricist lens. Uh, I don't want to discount that. I I think that, that using those lenses, using an empiricist lens, engaging in scientific experimentation, production of data and all that, that is fine and good. I don't think that we should stop doing that. But I do think that if we think that the solution to really complicated social problems is going to be arrived at through the production of data alone, then we're making a really big error. We're just, we're just thinking something that isn't true. And now, having said that, what I'm going to do is throw some psychoanalytic terms at you and try to use them in an attempt to explain why social problems seem to be rather resistant to overly empirical, overly scientific, overly rational solutions. So there are three terms that we're going to go over here. The libidinal is one. I'm going to talk about the libidinal components uh, that I think are embedded in complicated social problems. I'm going to talk about something called jouissance, which is a French word that doesn't really have a very good English translation. You'll hear more about it in a second. And I'm going to talk about massification. So those are the three terms. One more time. Libidinal, jouissance, and massification. Get ready. Starting with the idea of libidinal components here, if any of you have ever kind of like dabbled in Freud, you've probably come across the term libido. Uh, That's a term that is kind of synonymous with what I'm going to be talking about here. Freud had this idea that there was this thing called libido. And nowadays, I think largely because of popular culture, people sort of conflate the term libido with an individual's sex drive. And that's not the way that Freud used the term. When he talked about libido, he was talking about libidinal things. What are libidinal things? Another way we could talk about libidinal energy would be uh, to say that our body responds to different things in different ways. When, it's, it, when it can get excited about something, it can get bored. Getting excited about something, and I mean any form of excitement, right? If you're watching, like, if you're really into sports and you're watching a close game, there's probably a lot of libidinal energy that you're experiencing in the watching of that game. If you are, I don't know, really into politics and you're watching two politicians debate, there's going to be some libidinal energy in that. Uh, if you find yourself engaged in a heated discussion with somebody else about something and, and you're having like a, a, a disagreement, libidinal energy will will enter that discussion, Right. And so this libidinal energy is something that we feel and we feel it in our bodies. We can literally feel our bodies start to get excited about different things. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a sensation. Your muscles tighten up, your heart rate increases, you get a little bit of an adrenaline rush perhaps. And that's an example of libidinal energy. When this libidinal energy enters into any kind of thing that we're, we're doing, it starts to have an effect on our thinking. And there's a lot of ways we could describe that effect, but a really simplistic way would, would be to say that our capacity to engage in kind of like patient and rational analysis goes down and our propensity to make rash and impulsive decisions goes up. The greater the degree of libido, the greater, the more excited we become about anything, the more emotional we become about anything the less likely we are to be thinking in a really clear slash rational way and the more likely we are to be thinking in a very kind of like emotional and impulsive kind of a way. So that's the idea of a libidinal component. There are certain topics that in our culture people tend to have a, a strong libidinal reaction to. I named a bunch of them just a little bit ago. Those are things that would constitute um a libidinal component of social problems. What I think our textbook does is it sort of ignores the fact that people have these libidinal slash emotional reactions to things. And in ignoring that, it also ignores the fact that when people become emotional or emotionally compromised, compromised by how emotional they are, that their capacity for, you know, rational decision-making tends to decrease in a really significant way. So that's the first term. Second term, jouissance. Uh, this is a French word, and a lot of times it gets translated into English as enjoyment, but that doesn't quite capture it, right? There's different things that we enjoy, and you don't enjoy everything in the same way. Some things you enjoy because they're funny, and that's a certain kind of enjoyment. Other times you enjoy things because they're very moving. They're not funny, right, but they're, they're extremely moving. That's a different kind of enjoyment, We enjoy things that taste good, and taste is a different form of enjoyment than um, uh, things that that look really uh, attractive, pretty, that sort of thing, right? Uh, These are two different forms of enjoyment. So jouissance is the kind of enjoyment we get when we enjoy something that feels really, really good, but it also kind of hurts us. They're vices, in fact, right? Uh, If anybody has ever been a smoker, you probably know that smoking feels really good, right? You would, Smokers enjoy smoking. They also know you know, that smoking is not good for you, that they're deliberately ingesting a carcinogen into their lungs and that it doesn't have a really good effect on their body. Drinking alcohol. A lot of times people enjoy drinking alcohol. They do it in social occasions. It kind of loosens them up. They feel a little bit uh, less anxious, a little bit better. But alcohol is a poison. When we ingest alcohol, we're poisoning our bodies, right? We're, we're hurting them. Uh, and it goes beyond just things like that. Uh, there's a lot of patients that I've had in my clinical practice who have been in relationships that are just not good, right? They're bad for any number of reasons. But the the patient keeps on going back to that relationship because even though it's bad, it's exciting, it's interesting. There's something about it that just keeps on pulling them back into it, and that that would be jouissance. Jouissance is very much tied to this idea of libidinal energy. Uh, jouissance is something also that we feel in our body. And what's important about jouissance is jouissance is something that we enjoy while it simultaneously has a destructive effect on our lives, our, our careers, our, um, our bodies, our social relationships, et cetera, et cetera, right? So I'll probably say more about this in class, but I just kind of want to introduce the topic here in this, this podcast lecture. So that's uh, that's jouissance. So now we covered libidinal component. We've covered jouissance. Last thing that I want to bring up, massification, which has a lot to do with both libidinal energy and, and jouissance. Uh, what I want to point out here is that when you are on your own, y- and you tend to behave as though you don't want to get in trouble. Uh, right now, if we were to go out into public, we'd probably see a lot of people wearing masks. Now, a lot of them probably don't enjoy wearing masks very much. They don't like wearing masks, but they do it. Why do they do it? Well, they do it because they don't want to um, have people think bad of them. They don't want people to think that they're a jerk. They don't want people to think that, that they're uh, doing something inappropriate, right? That, that would be, and that's just a good, I guess, example of how people uh, do things overall. Uh, a lot of times when we're out and about, we tend to follow the rules of the society that we live in. Because we don't want to endure the consequences that would come with not following those rules. But every now and then, something will happen where there's what I'm going to call a massifying effect. Conditions will come together in a weird way. And when they do, what happens is a, a certain number of people start breaking the rules. It usually starts with one person. And then after one person breaks the rule, a second person breaks the rule. And then after that, a third person, so on and so forth. Eventually, you have a, and, and every time another person gets added, the, um, the energy of the situation changes. Uh, this is the way that mobs start. This is what happens when you have riots. Riots don't just start like in a coordinated, deliberate kind of a way. They they happen as a result of massification. Some the people have gathered together. There's a dense amount of people. When there's a dense amount of people. One person breaks a rule, they're quickly followed by a second, then a third, and then you have like just tons and tons of people breaking a rule. And that would be a massifying effect. Now, in our day and age, we can see massifying effects happening in physical locations where people do things like start riots uh, and whatnot, but we can also see them happening in places like the online world and on social media, places like that. Somebody will attack one person and then this person is being attacked by all sorts of people that would be an example of a massifying effect as well the thing that i want to point out here is that massification happens when people jouissance and their their libidinal energy gets really fired up and it happens sort of simultaneously to a large group of people to a bunch of individuals and a large group of people uh, and that's when we have these massifying effects and massifying effects are very dangerous now uh, one of the, well, there's if there's ever a, a point where you definitely do not want to sort of engage in a kind of like slow, deliberate, rational problem-solving model. It's in the middle of a riot or other, some other kind of crisis where there's been a massification incident and, and people's jouissance is running around in a totally unchecked, wild way. And that's where uh, this book kind of, I think, does, doesn't talk about that, right? And, and these are things that I think we should be talking about. So when we come together as a class, again what I want to do is spend a little bit more time kind of unpacking these three di- uh, terms and maybe a few other ones that are related to them. Libidinal components, jouissance, and massification. This will also uh, kind of incidentally lead into a much larger project that we're going to be doing a little bit later on in the semester, but I'm laying the groundwork here and now. And uh, I think that's all I have to say today. So I'm going to wrap up here, say thank you very much for taking the time to download this, listen to this, and get ready for class. It was I appreciate that you did that. Um, until I see you in class, I hope that you have some fun and that you make some glorious mistakes. Take care.